are listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. You will hear fervent, old-fashioned revival sermons from great preachers of the past. It is our desire that you will be helped by this gospel message. In Isaiah 9, verse number 6, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this that may seem to be impossible, but the zeal of the Lord will bring into reality that which, humanly speaking, could never become a reality any other way. Now I recognize that these two verses oftentimes are used at Christmas time. We have them on our Christmas card. We sometimes paste them on the walls of our houses, and we quote them, and we sing about them. Sometimes you find these two verses incorporated in the melody, and the words and the refrain are stanzas of a, of a song, a gospel song at Christmas time in particular. But I don't know that this is a Christmas text. I'm amazed to note that there are seven tremendous prophecies in these two verses. And I'd like to point these seven prophecies out to you. And I mean that in the literal sense, literal prophecies, predictions of things that shall come to pass that are set forth in rapid fire succession, one, two, three, uh, in these two verses that I've read to you. Seven tremendous prophecies. Now, these seven prophecies, humanly speaking, are impossible. One by one, they are impossible. For example, prophecy number one, unto us a child is given. How in the world can it be? Number two, unto us a son is given. How can it be? And then prophecy number three, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. How can it be? Number four, in the increase of his, of his uh, government, there shall be no end. In peace, how can it be? When you read them and look at them, you say, it can never be a reality. But the key that unlocks the seven prophecies of these two verses is in the last sentence. The zeal of the Lord will perform this. Now, what does that mean? What is the zeal of the Lord? What does the word zeal imply? What does the word zeal mean? There are two things that I think I ought to mention to you in relation to the last sentence. Uh, actually, the last sentence in verse number seven is the key that unlocks the entire uh, two, seven prophecies. The zeal of the Lord implies, first of all, power and ability uh, sufficient to do the job. And I think certainly all of us would, as would ascribe to Almighty God the attribute of omnipotence. For with God there should be nothing impossible. And then the scripture says to me and you, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth us. With the Lord, what may be impossible with me is not impossible at all, but within the realm of potential, in the realm of possibility, you see. And so zeal implies the ability, implies the, the strength of God, the might of God, and the power of God is, uh, is uh, included in the word zeal. And then again, the word zeal also includes uh, persistency uh, to a task. It includes or would mean consistency of conduct, consistency of life. It implies a program, a purpose. I'd like to say to you that all that God is in this world today, in relation to you and me that are saved, and in relation to the church, in relation to the gospel, is not by accident. 
but rather by design and by purpose. I don't, I don't think the church is an afterthought or salvage program. Some people give the idea that when the Israel crucified the Prince of Glory, that God was sorely disappointed to the degree that he picked up the broken pieces out of the disappointment and the martyrdom of the Savior. And out of that, those broken pieces, he salvaged a little bit that he called the church, you see. And that the church is actually a salvage program, a second best, and had God had his way, then the Prince of Glory would not have died, and that he would have ascended the throne of David then. But if you hold to that idea, I'd like to remind you that you're just as wrong as you can be. I'd like to submit to you that the church, as we know it today, is foreordained of God from the foundation of the world, and that God purposed and planned to build the church exactly as he has built it. And more than that, the church is doing today exactly what God ordained that it do, and shall always do exactly what God planned that it do from the foundation of the world. The church is not an afterthought. The church is God's purpose and God's plan and God's program, you see. And when the Almighty started out way back before the foundation of the world, he knew exactly where he was going and how he'd get there and how he'd, uh, the people he used uh, to realize his purpose, you see. And so the Lord is moving right on course and on schedule, on time, and things are moving exactly as God planned from the foundation of the world. Now, sometimes you hear the prophets of doom who say, well, the church is in bad straits. The church is about to die. The church is about to go down. I told some other day, go down nothing. It's about to go up in the rapture, you say. Uh, the church is not about to fail. How can we fail with our head in glory? And how can we fail with our feet of an assured foundation? And how can we fail with certain promises that are backed up by the integrity of Almighty behind us? There's no way but victory for it, meaning you that are saved and part of the body of Christ, you see. We're bound uh, to come out victorious. Now, the reason I say that is because of the zeal of the Lord. Uh, if I had to base what I've just said a moment ago upon myself, I'd never have the courage to say it. If I had to depend altogether upon Brother Sammy Allen, I'd never have the courage of saying it. If I had to depend upon what I've just said a moment ago upon Baptists to see it realized, I'd never have courage enough to say it. If I had to depend upon Nashville or Rome or Atlanta to see these things come about, no, I'd never have the courage to say them. But when I know that the zeal of God is behind these impossible things to accomplish that which God ordained that he would accomplish, that I'm bold to submit to you that everything is all right in my Father's house. In the zeal of the Lord will perform that which is impossible. Sure as you live, it's bound to happen. And that's what zeal is. Zeal is a program. God did not start out and and uh, this took what happened uh, uh, to me. Can you imagine God looking down upon that man, Adam, that Billy preached about a while ago? And uh, maybe God said to Gabriel, uh, where did that fellow come from? Who is that fellow down there in the Garden of Eden? And after a while, here's a woman at his side. And God said, Gabriel, what, what about that woman down there with that man? What? Oh, no, my friend. God made that man. And God made that woman. And God put them in that earthly paradise. And God knew exactly what would happen. And God knew what he was going to do when it did happen, you see. In the providence of God, everything worked out exactly on schedule. Now, the zeal of the Lord will perform these impossible things. 
Now let's look at these prophecies with that in mind. Number one, I find in verse number six, unto us a child is born. And along with that, unto us a son is given. Now these two first of the seven are already fulfilled. Already. Not going to be. They have already been fulfilled. Uh, 2,000 years ago, this Christ of God was born as predicted and as prophesied. And then 33 years later, he was given upon Calvary to pay our sin debt exactly as the Scriptures described that he would be. He died according to the Scriptures in every single detail. So prophecy number one and two has already found its fulfillment. Uh, did you know that Isaiah, in chapter 7, earlier in the same great book of prophecy, had written down in verse number 14, The whole of virgin shall be with child and bring forth a son. A virgin shall conceive and have a child. And I imagine when Isaiah received that from the Lord, and he wrote it down with the pen of inspiration, he might have stopped and laid down his pen and rubbed his eyes and looked out of the window, and he might have said, Now, Lord, did I get more to straight? He might have said, now, did you really mean that, almighty God? That a virgin? Why, Isaiah might have said, now, Lord, that's never happened. Never has that ever happened. And uh, it's a biological impossibility. Now, how in the world could this prophecy be correct? And God might have whispered, Isaiah, uh, you got it correct. Put it down just like I told you. Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And Isaiah said, well, now, Lord, if that's what you say, I don't understand it. But I'll put it down just like you wrote. And Isaiah wrote down, Behold, a virgin shall be with child. And he might have wondered a many a time, How in the world can that be? How in the world can that find fulfillment? But he never changed it. And he died with Isaiah 7:14 reading exactly the same thing. He never revised the scripture. There was no revised standard version for Isaiah. But it was an old fashioned Bible from the time he wrote it. And Isaiah died without seeing, verse 14, become fulfilled. And when Isaiah died, I can imagine a many a scribe picked up uh, the pens to copy that didn't have the printing presses, and all the Bible had to be copied by hand, and the scribe would write and toil and labor in copying. And when the scribe would get to chapter 7, 14, he'd say, I believe the old man had hardened the arteries. And he must have made a mistake. Why, the scribe said, how in the world can a virgin conceive? That borders on mythology, the scribe might have said. And the scribe has, I might have said, I've got a good mind to revise that and bring that up to date and change that to a young woman like they did in 1958. But God said, scribe, don't you touch that. And that scribe feared and trembled and wrote it down just like I was there at put and that scribe died. Then another scribe picked up the pen of inspiration that he copied. And he might have had the same thoughts. And years passed by. And scribes came and copied. And then died. Another scribe copied. And then died. Another scribe copied. And then died. And I imagine 400 years after Isaiah wrote it, a scribe might have got to chapter 7, 14, or maybe 9, 6, and laid down the pen as he copied and said, Lord God, Isaiah has been dead 400 years. And yet no virgin has brought forth a child. 
Lord, when? When will this prophecy become a glorious reality? How can it become a glorious reality? But God said, now you faithfully write down what the prophet of God in spite of the Lord put down in that chapter. And that scribe kept on writing. He died. Another picked up the pen, kept on writing, and right on down. And then one day, one day, 740 years after Isaiah wrote chapter 714, one day in the temple in Jerusalem, a virgin made brought an eight-year-old boy into that temple having circumcised an old Simeon, a prophet of God more than 80 years old, had uncovered the face of a miniature child and looked into that face because the Almighty had said, Simeon, you shall not die until thine eyes have seen the Lord's Christ. And time and time again, that man Simeon uncovered the face of a babe, looked into the face and then covered the face back up and circumcised the lad, and went on about his task. But one day, Mary the Virgin, born in the Christ of God, and Simeon uncovered the face of that virgin-born Christ of God. And the moment he looked into that face, the witnesses set up, and he cried, Mine eyes have seen the Lord's Christ. Let thy servant depart in peace for mine eyes. have seen the fulfillment of Isaiah 7, 14. 740 years. After Isaiah said it would happen, brother, it happened. And the secret and the key is the zeal of God. God brought it into reality. That's prophecy number one. Then prophecy number two says, unto us a son is given. That's Calvary. The devil did everything he could to keep the Son of God from going to the cross. In fact, he tried to keep the Son from coming to begin with. Long since the devil tried to kill the seed from Eden to Gethsemane. And when finally the seed prevailed and the son was born, then the devil set out to destroy the son before Calvary. And in the garden of Gethsemane, he almost did that. As he sweated the word, drops of blood and cried, Lord, let this cup pass to me. How can I face it? This is uh, the wrong day. I can't die today. No man sweat as drops of blood and survive. Jesus said, this is the wrong day, this is the 13th day, I must die on the 14th day, the day of the Passover. This is the wrong place, I cannot die in Gethsemane, I must die upon Calvary's brow. This is the wrong company, I can't die with my disciples about me, I must die forsaken of my disciples. This is the wrong passion, I cannot die with my robe without a seam upon my body, I must die stripped of every garment. Lord, let this cup pass to me, give me grace to survive this 13th day, so that I can die in the fullness of time as prophesied in the scripture. And God gave grace. And then even after that ordeal, during the night before the Sanhedrin court, all night long Jesus appeared before the Sanhedrin court and they brought in lewd men to lie about him. They charged him and accused him and then finally came up with the verdict, he is guilty of death. And even after he was uh, decreed that, it would, that he would die, Yet some of the Jews said, we can't crucify this man now. This is the feast of the Passover. And if we crucify this man on the day of the Passover, all of Israel will rise up in rebellion. But they did. They did. The devil did everything. He used the military. He used religion. He used circumstances. He used the weakness of the, fray, of, of the physical body. He used every means to destroy the seed before Calvary could become a reality. But the zeal of God brought him to Calvary. 
And I mark you that every prophecy relating to the death of my Savior found glorious fulfillment at Calvary, even to that drink of water that he didn't get. Every detail. I marvel at that. The zeal of the Lord has brought into fulfillment prophecy number one and prophecy number two. But wait a minute. There's seven prophecies in this, in this text. Prophecy number three says, and his name shall be called, I'm sorry, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now here's a prophecy that has never been fulfilled. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Oh, wait a minute. Here we are in 1975, much like the scribes back 400 years after Isaiah died. Here we are saying to ourselves, maybe the old prophet was wrong. And we have the advantage of the New Testament. We have the advantage of fulfilled prophecy in one and two. And yet when you come to prophecy number three, we have the same bit and the same temptation that the ancient scribes might have had. And we cry in our soul, how in the world can prophecy number three ever find fulfillment? And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, if you know anything at all about the life of our Lord and about the New Testament, you know that's never happened. There was never a day that our Lord ever wore a crown upon his head or held a scepter in his hand or sat upon a kingly throne or wore a kingly garment. Not one time. He had no palace in which to live. He sat at no king's table. And he had no servants to wait upon him. He was not a king. He's called the king two times in Matthew's Gospel, but 87 times he's called the Son of Man. Well, how in the world, then, can you ever hope for the day when David's stone is to be reestablished and the son of David, the only living descendant, the Lord Jesus, occupy that stone? How can it happen? Well, humanly speaking, I'd have to admit to you, it can never happen. If I were to go to the United Nations today and preach what I'm preaching to you now and remotely suggest that the day would come when the law of God should go forth from Jerusalem, and that the kingdom of David and the throne of David would become reestablished, those wise men from the nations of the earth would look at each other and whisper and wink and say, the boy has got too much religion. He's been affected mentally. Now, he means well, but he's, uh, he's rather fanatical about religion. And they'd laugh me to scorn. Why, they'd say, take him back south where the fundamentalists are. Uh, we, we have no part with him in the great and progressive city of New York. They'd laugh me to scorn. And I'll have to agree with the wise men of our day that from a human standpoint, the very thought of one government, one throne, one king is an impossible thought. And in particular from Jerusalem, and in particular old-time religion, is an impossible thought. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. I'd like to remind you that believe the Bible that the same God that brought prophecy number one into fulfillment and prophecy number two into fulfillment, under God, that same God is obligated to bring prophecy number three into fulfillment. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The day is going to come as surely as you hear me preach when King Jesus shall climb upon the throne of David and sit down and rule the world with a rod of iron. But how's it is? And I don't think we're fanatical to believe that. In fact, you're unscriptural if you don't believe it. If I know anything at all about Bible prophecy, that's a valid part, a very important part 
of things that shall come to pass upon this earth. A literal kingdom. Now, I know we have the kingdom with us now uh, in the spiritual aspect. And I'm aware of the fact that you and I are going to save the members now of the kingdom of heaven. But that doesn't fit the prophecy. Uh, though we have the spiritual kingdom with us now, the lion and the lamb has never laid down together. And though we have the spiritual kingdom with us now, there has never been peace covering the earth like the waters cover the sea. No, there hasn't. You know that. And the same Bible that prophesied a literal kingdom has also predicted the time when the lion and the lamb shall lie down, the lion shall eat straw like an oxen, and peace will cover the valleys like the waters cover the sea. Now, brethren, we've got to take it all. And as sure as you live, that kingdom must come. Now, the United Nations will never bring it. President Ford will never bring it. Baptist preachers and preaching will never bring it. The Roman Catholic Church will never bring it. Man will devise a false peace of the tribulation period, but as far as a permanent, lasting peace, it'll never happen until King Jesus comes again. Now, if you'll give me just a minute, I'm going to tell you how that's going to happen. Now, I can't do it. I can't produce it. I can't. My arm is weak. My ability is limited. And I would to God that I could convert Greenville. I've given 35 years of preaching in my county. And many others have blazed a trail before I ever began preaching. And Greenville today remains unconverted. And as far as I'm concerned, prophecy number three could never find fulfillment. Never. And the very thought of it in this worldly, sophisticated age we live in is foolish and absurd to imagine a day when there'd be a literal kingdom with King Jesus upon a literal throne. But here's how it's going to happen. The Antichrist will appear in due time. He's going to appear. And the tribulation will run its course. No question about that. The church will be raptured out. No question about that. No question about it. But when God begins to pour the judgments of God upon the earth in the time of the tribulation, in particular upon Jacob and upon the holy city of Jerusalem and upon the people of Israel, that tribulation is determined in Daniel chapter number 9. No way in the world for Israel to avoid it. It's bound to come. Bound to come. And the Antichrist is going to ride high. He's going to become a real champion to Israel in that he will confirm the covenant with them for seven years. He will grant permission for the rebuilding of the temple, no doubt in my mind about that. One sure thing that's bound to happen is the rebuilding of that temple in Jerusalem. It's bound to come. Jesus in Matthew 24, 15 uh, makes mention of the temple. And there is no temple in Jerusalem today. There is no temple there. I've been there. There is no temple there. Jesus evidently made a mistake in Matthew 24, 15, or a new temple is to be built. And I think I know which alternative I've chosen. And more than that, Ezekiel describes minutely that temple in Ezekiel 42, 48. And that temple is going to be built right there in Jerusalem. And the Antichrist will be a champion to Israel. And they'll say, they'll say who is likely to the beast what a great Savior he is. What a great champion he is. But you know, when God pours out the fourth vial, he pours that vial in Revelation 16 upon the seat of the beast, the Antichrist. 
and his kingdom becomes filled with darkness, and he loses his grip. He's been popular. He's been the number one man since the beginning of the tribulation. But when that vial is poured upon the seat of the beast, he loses his popularity. He loses his grip. And he sees this world begin to slip in directions he never thought he'd experience. And in desperation, he's going to turn against the very people that he's been a champion of. And he's going to become the worst Jew persecutor the world has ever known, far surpassing Hitler. And in order to persecute the house of Jacob, he's going to gather together an army that the Bible suggests will number 200 million. That's the largest army this world's ever seen gathered together in one place in all history. And that place where this army is to be gathered is Megiddo, 25 miles north of the city of Jerusalem. I've crossed Megiddo five times. It's a vast area called in the Old Testament the plains of Jezreel. And a great army of 200 million men will be gathered from all the nations of the earth to besiege the holy city and to destroy the state of Israel and to annihilate the Jew. What the Syrians and the Arabs are claiming they're going to do, the Antichrist will take up and attempt to do it in the closing hours of the tribulation. And before the Antichrist gave orders to that vast army to besiege the city and to destroy the state of Israel, listen to me. A man upon a white horse shall appear out of heaven with all the saints of God with him. Revelation 19, verse 11 and following. Oh, but wait a minute, preacher. Wait a minute. I don't believe that. I don't accept that. No intelligent person could accept the fact that a man upon a white horse would descend out of heaven. If our almighty God can get a, a child from a virgin's womb, he can get a son from heaven upon a white horse. If Almighty God can bring out of chaos this earth planet as we now enjoy it with this beautiful sunshine that Brother Samuel mentioned a moment ago, he can bring a man out of heaven upon a white horse. If God can bring me from nothing and give me physical existence and spiritual consciousness, then he can bring a man upon a white horse out of heaven. The zeal of the Lord will perform it. And the most phenomenal thing the world has ever heard of and ever seen, you talk about the news media, they're going to have a heyday when that white horse begins to appear out of the glory. And upon that white horse is none other than the Prince of Glory, the Son of God. His name is clearly identified in Revelation not, uh, 19, not one time, but seven times his name is mentioned. In one chapter, there can be no mistake as to who that man is upon that white horse. He's the Prince of Glory, Jesus the Nazarene, coming back to ascend the throne of his father. And you know what's going to happen? When he comes out of heaven, the he stabs a sharp sword proceeding out of his mouth, and that sharp sword is a symbol of his spoken word. Just as God spoke this world into existence, Jesus will speak and two million soldiers and their horses will die in Megiddo. He'll speak another word and the flesh-eating fowls will come and begin to eat the flesh and devour the flesh to kings and captains and a mighty men and their horses. The great slaughter of God is called Armageddon. 
and it all be produced by the man upon that white horse with that sharp two-edged sword proceeded out of his hand. Jesus will mount that white horse and go down to Jerusalem and have a triumphal entry into that holy city. Now there's something of a triumphal entry in Matthew's gospel upon a donkey, an humble donkey. And they rejected the Prince of Glory and said nothing good can come out of Nazareth. But in this real triumphal entry, he's to go through that eastern gate upon a white horse as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And he's going straight to that new temple. And that's where that David's throne will be reestablished. And he's going to call uh, the nations together and ascend that throne. And sit down to rule for a thousand years. Bound to happen. Bound to happen. Well, now wait a minute, preacher. The nations of the earth will never allow that to happen. The nations of the earth are helpless in the revelation I read. And then will the nations angry? But there's nothing they can do about it. The buzzards are even their armies up in Megiddo. And Bruce, Neff, and Castro, and Ford, and all the others are powerless and helpless. Their armies having been destroyed by the brightness of him that comes upon that white horse. And Jesus will sit down uncontested upon the throne of David in the new temple in Jerusalem. And establish the literal kingdom of God on this earth. And set up a rule that no man can deny and no man can destroy for a thousand wonderful years. Wait a minute, preacher, wait a minute. Why, that can't be so. That's right, humanly speaking, I'll agree with you. And if I was preaching in Washington, those sinners would say, take the boy out, he needs psychiatric treatment. And some religious people have the same notion. But I'd like to remind you who believe the Bible that the zeal of God will do this. And when God decrees it, brother, it's bound to happen. The zeal of the Lord will perform this that seems impossible to you. Now that's prophecy number three. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What a day that's going to be. Preacher, I just, oh brother, you believe that. And when you believe that, you can go on tonight and sleep peacefully. When you believe that, you won't get upset by a lot of things. When you believe that, you'll learn that everything's all right in my Father's house. When you learn that, you'll find out that God's calendar's up to date, and God's power's not diminished, and God's arm is not shortened. No. And the zeal of the Lord will perform it. Now we get prophecy number four. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Now, if you know anything at all about the Bible and about the history of the church, that prophecy has never been fulfilled. Oh, yes, we call him wonderful. But we are, we are a circumscribed minority, and I mean a minority with a capital M. Just a few. Comparatively speaking, we are just a few. I rejoice in Brother Sanders' report about the attendance of the meeting a moment ago, and I'm glad you're here. But to comparatively speaking... Those of us in this meeting today are only a drop in the bucket in this county to say nothing of the state of Georgia. The masses of the people could not care less about what me and you 
champion and love within our hearts. And the masses of the people would never call Jesus wonderful. In fact, they use his name for profanity. They slander his name. They, they disgrace his name. They use his name loosely. This world has never called him wonderful. We call him wonderful in our songs. We call him wonderful in our preaching. But the world has never called Jesus wonderful. But brethren, I'm taking this verse to be literal. The day is going to come when this world will say, he's wonderful. He's wonderful. Now give me another minute and I'm going to tell you how that's going to happen. When Jesus sits down upon that throne and establishes the kingdom and orders the kingdom, Peter or Paul or one of the apostles, they're going to rule with him, by the way. Never has been but twelve apostles, never will be more. Those twelve will reign with Christ in the millennium and throughout eternity as well. Amen. But Paul, maybe, or Peter will come to Jesus and say, Jesus, uh, the news media is very anxious for an interview. They want an explanation as to what happened to that army of 200 million men that the buzzers are eating. And the capitals of all the world are calling. The telephones are busy. The radio signals are busy. And around the world, people are saying, what's happening? What's happening? What's taking place? We need to get a... Uh, a communique out of Jerusalem about what's taking place. And the Lord says, well, Peter, I think we can arrange that. You tell all these newsmen to be in the, in the throne room at nine o'clock in the morning. And nine o'clock the next morning, I can't prove this scripturally, but it's logical to me. Nine o'clock the next morning, those newsmen will come in. They, wherever there's a story, good or bad, especially bad, the newsmen are there. And that's pretty bad army, two hundred bad, bad story, two hundred million men dead. Pretty bad thing. They don't want to get back to the TV cameras in a hurry. They can't pass that up. So the next morning, nine o'clock, here they are, dozens. Why they've come from New York and Chicago and London and Paris and Rome and South America to find out what happened to their armies. All the nations of the earth will be represented in the army of the Antichrist at Armageddon. What's happened? And here they are, they stand waiting. At nine o'clock sharp, the door opens, and Jesus Christ, in his celestial glory, walks across the polished floors of that new temple, and like a king that he is, sits down upon David's throne, with a crown upon his head and a scepter in his hand, and after a hesitation, he says, gentlemen, I'm ready for the first question. And instead of a question, there's silence as still as death. Who's going to question the Almighty? Who dare stand up? Who dare suggest what has happened ought not to have happened? And those Jews men who can talk freely at Watergate are going to be silent when the water of life is in their presence. And their questions shall flee them. And they stand like dumb men. And Jesus, after hesitation, says, Gentlemen, I repeat, I'm ready for the first question. And still that silence is unbroken. And after the Lord hesitates, he says, All right, since you have no questions, I will now outline my program for the next thousand years. That's never been said, brother. That's never! In all history, has no monarch ever said anything like that. 
But the king of kings will say, I'm going to outline my program for a thousand years. And one, two, three, four, the king begins to point out what's going to happen for the next thousand years. And those men are writing, the TV cameras are grounding, and the radio tapes are recording, and they're getting all that there. And when he finishes outlining what mean you know from the Bible, those news media have to be told. But you and I know it because we had a release uh, previously, you see. In fact, we've had this news release now for a long time. The Lord said, I'll give some Baptist preachers a preview into what I'm going to do. And he wrote it down in this book. But those news, that man, those news men don't know about that. So the Lord gives them a news conference and outlines his program for a thousand wonderful years. God bless you, preacher. And when he finishes, he stands up and says, that's all, gentlemen, and walks out like the king that he is. And the moment he steps out of that room, they hurry to the telephone. And I imagine the man from the New York Times dials New York. And the editor says, what in the world has kept you? Well, these presses are stopped. We're waiting for some report about what happened to armies in Megiddo, the plains of Jezreel. Why have you been so long? And the editor says, I want a story. And that reporter will say, he's wonderful. More <laughs> And the editor said, I don't want that. Tell me. Give me the story. And that reporter will say, he's wonderful, sir. He's wonderful. He's wonderful. And believe it or not, the next day the New York Times will come out with the headline, Jesus is wonderful. You talked about a revival breaking out in Georgia then. We'll have it. Who is your boy? Wonderful. Wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And I can predict to you the headlines of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Someday. Bound to happen. The zeal of the Lord. Preacher, you're crazy. No, I'm not crazy. I'm a believer. Then prophecy number five, and the increase of his government and peace. There should be no end. We celebrate our bicentennial. America's come a long way. Praise the Lord for America. I'm glad that I'm an American. Thank God for our country. One thing, we may be indicted for many things, but there's not a traitor in this building. No, sir. We're a patriot. We're loyal, law-abiding citizens. There's not a traitor in this building. Praise God for that. Not a communist in this building. Not a socialist in this building. And I'm glad to be identified with patriots like you are. We've come a long way in these 200 years in American history. But you talked about a, a, a nation, a world increasing, a government increasing, and peace prevailing. The world's never seen what we're going to see. And the increase of its government and peace there shall be no end, forever and forever. What a day that's going to be. Then you can walk away from your houses without locking your doors. Then the criminal will be brought into subjection. 
Then law and order will be recognized. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Amen. The increase of that government. Instead of Jesus diminishing, the longer you sit upon David's throne, the more blessed this kingdom is going to become. This kingdom is not to be a democracy nor a socialistic state nor a communistic state. Somebody said, Preacher, aren't you afraid the communists are going to take over? No, Jesus is going to take over. And when Jesus takes over, it's not going to be communism or socialism or even democracy. It's to be a monarchy. There won't be any houses of parliaments or congresses or state governors. You and I will be the state governors. And the twelve apostles will be the world diplomats to take the place of the Kissingers. And King Jesus will be on the throne of David in Jerusalem. That brings a lot of consolation to me. And the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. We're headed to the most wonderful period in all the history of the human family. And it could be closer than you ever thought. Two other things. Number six, he shall order this kingdom. He's going to set it up exactly as he wills. He'll not call a council together to draft a new constitution. The constitution is written in the Gospel of Matthew. And the bylaws are written in the other Gospels. And the rules and regulations are set down in the Word of God. You won't need a Congress, a Constitutional Congress. He's going to order it. King Jesus will set it up. And you and I will be glad to have it so. We've had our full of Congresses and Parliaments, haven't we? I want to see a King. The King. Not just a King, but the King. The Lord Jesus. Then number seven. He's going to establish this kingdom upon two great principles that we have little of in 1975. Principle number one, judgment. Principle number two, justice. In that coming kingdom, the judgment will be swift and sure. Any man that dare violate any command or dare violate the word of the king will be judged immediately. There'll be no court of appeal. There'll be no uh, defendant attorneys. But his law will be absolute. Judgment is swift. The criminal then will hide or quit his criminal life because judgment is sure. And then justice. You don't get a great deal of that. Sometimes not even in the courts do you always get justice. But I mark you that this scheme will be characterized by judgment and justice. Every man will receive exactly what he ought to have. Exactly what he ought to have. What a day. Preacher, that's so fantastic. Hard to believe. Well, I'll agree, it's fantastic. I'll agree, it may be difficult, humanly speaking, to believe. But remember the zeal of the Lord, God's strength, God's purpose. And God has never violated his word. I can find no place in the scriptures that God remotely suggests the time would come when some solemn promise would not be kept. But I find the opposite. Not a jot or tittle will ever pass away until every bit of it Thank you for listening to the Classic Sermons Podcast from PreachTheBible.org, a ministry of North Valley Baptist Church in Santa Clara, California. To listen to many more powerful sermons, visit our website, PreachTheBible.org. If you enjoy Christian music and programming, visit KNVBC.com for Christian music you can trust.